and it hits me, oh my gosh, this is that triangle. You know, there's explanation for everything that occurred in the Rendlesham Forest incident that doesn't involve aliens at all. It was completely silent. It comes right over our heads. He saw a classic flying saucer really standing in the clearing. He turned over to my father and held his hand and he looked in his eyes and he said, we're not alone. Hey, hello, everyone. This is Martin Willis, your host. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to the audio podcast. First of all, I do appreciate every single listener. And if you support the show now, I want to thank you very much. And I apologize that you actually have to listen to this. If you listen to a lot of podcasts out there, you'll know that there's a lot of podcasts that run ads. And I do get approached all the time to run ads. And when I started this almost 12 years ago, I vowed not to do that. But I do need your help as the show is quite costly. Some of the expenses are bandwidth use, website maintenance, graphics, blogs, audio blogs. And of course, sometimes there's travel expenses. I'd like to do more of that, go to conferences, things like that. If you can help us out for $2 or more a month, uh, you'll see the Patreon link in the text below. I would appreciate it very much. Thanks. And I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to the show. We have some type of tech thing going on here. I'm trying to figure out. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. We have an issue here. Ah, okay, got it, found it. Thank you everyone for your patience uh, every once in a while. It's a lot better these days than it used to be, but I used to get teased a lot because uh, I don't have sometimes the best technical capabilities, but uh, we've got things ironed out over the years, more or less. And so I just had to remind everyone the way it used to be. So welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. Tonight, we have a great uh, ufologist. I'm really excited to talk to uh, Chris Stiles up in Nova Scotia. I think they celebrated their Canada Day or whatever it was on July 1st. Uh, we're holding this show a day early because of the celebration tomorrow. I know a lot of people are going to be watching fireworks, so I thought it would be best to, in the United States, for uh, the listeners there, it would be better to do this show a day early. So I appreciate those who are watching live and uh, coming into the show and chat and all that. And so a couple of things to blog this week is uh, by Charles Lear, as usual. This one is called... Uh, t-shirt worthy UFO headlines. And there are some uh, very interesting ones. And this, uh, but this one in particular about elephants snatched by a UFO. And it's funny when Charles was uh, researching this one, he said, there seemed like there was something actually kind of legitimate about this particular case. So anyway, uh, check out the blog. It's over at podcastufo.com. And uh, we have new blogs every week, which uh, turn into audio blogs. And uh, so I am ready to bring in our guests from the North. Chris Stiles, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be here, Martin, and see you again. And yes. looking so, so Hawaiian, so uh, summery. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. tropic. Because yeah. up here right now, I'm in just a pea soup of fog. And it's about as warm as what we normally expect for April, but you know we'll probably be melting down in a week. That's how it goes here. Yeah. Two yeah. sayings in Nova Scotia. One is if you don't like the weather, wait ten minutes. But the better one is actually what comes after two days of rain, Monday. 
<laughs> oh, I don't quite get that one, but I, uh, you know, where I live up in Maine, they have, I think they say three seasons. It's winter's coming, winter's going, and winter. <laughs> yeah. And then this 4th of July. That is, that is the fourth season. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, uh, great to have you on. And I have to say that uh, I was thrilled to now. I know it's kind of hard to show this cover, but I was, yeah, <laughs> the camera does weird things here. But uh, uh, Sweep Clear 5, this uh, wonderful book um, you uh, sent me the manuscript for, and I really enjoyed reading it. And I have learned a whole new respect for you and your work and how thorough of work that you do and you won't let go of something. And, and I love that. And what I want to remind you of is uh, uh, the last time you were on the show, I was conflating the two incidences uh, of Shag Harbor and the Shelburne uh, USO as one. And I, I went into to detail it. It says, didn't they find this, you know, up further? And they, they went down and they saw, you know, the beings and all this stuff. And you said, well, this could be something, that might be something different. You didn't really get into it then. And you were in the mm -hmm. middle of working on this. And uh, so, and you've had a struggle with this one. You People were joining the two together as one incident. Mm -hmm. uh, Shelburne happened in 1960 and Shag Harbor happened in 1967. So how do you think they first were like joined together? People were, were putting the two together as one incident to begin with. Well, to be honest, the fault for some of that probably lies with myself, really. <laughs> no, 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 quite seriously. I'll tell you, because uh, let's just give you a real quick timeline as to how that came about, really. Uh, I mean, I became involved with ufology would have been what? April of 92. And, uh, you know, that story is told in the book. The thing is, in 92, um, I delved into it. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I hoped I'd learn from mistakes, and I believed I did. And Oops. Sorry, but, I, I'm, I'm suffering technical issues here, and I'm not even sure how that came up uh, from last week. Mm. Here we go. You're, okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. Make it interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe my audio was cut, so whatever. Yeah, that's right. No, we heard you. Yeah. Anyway, one year later, um, I'd reached the point in the development of Shag Harbor, which was, you know, in this in a way may sound light, but I've always thought of the case as the years went by as the gift that keeps on giving. Maybe not monetarily, certainly not monetarily. <laughs> However, um, you know, in terms of like every time you would uh, – go down an avenue of research, right? Every time you'd have a tip and check it out, the case grew and grew in strength. You know, there was something to it. And that continues to this day. Not as frequently as it did in those exciting years of the 90s, right, for me. But, you know, it just every day there was something in the mailbox. There was a contact, a story to be told. The case quickly grew. And nobody ever related anything that, you know, diminished its importance or the interpretation of it. But the first time the problem came up, my first awareness of the Shelburne USO story uh, was first presented to me a, a year after beginning. And this would have been in April of uh, 1993. 
And I finally felt I was ready for face-to-face interviews with, you know, the divers, eyewitnesses, RCMP, local fishermen, whatever. I was lucky enough, I had a friend in high school whose father I knew was head of the fleet diving unit at Maritime Command in Halifax. And uh, I contacted him and asked if he had any idea who the people were that had dove on the Shag Harbor mission. The newspapers and other sources had mentioned there'd been seven, and he just named them right off. But he kept naming names, and eventually he gave me more than seven. And this is all, of course, within the new book there uh, about the Shelburne case. But the thing is, um, the other cases, he said, yeah, I don't know if you want them, you know, about Shelburne, don't you? And I'm like, well, uh, Shag Harbors in Shelburne County, is that what you're referring to? He said, you talk to the guys, I'll straighten you out on this. So they had no idea I was going to contact them. And when I did, yes, they talked about Shag Harbor. And when I would first make contact, it would be like, uh, yeah, I guess we can talk about that. It was a long time ago now. Gee, never thought I'd have anybody calling me about this. And eventually, you know, face-to-face interviews were arranged. But even in that first phone call before I went, they kept saying, you know about Shelburne, don't you? And I'm saying, well, what do you mean? Do you mean Shag Harbor? That's in Shelburne County again. No, no. He says, oh, by the base. He said, uh, I said, well, is this 1967? Because I knew the date of Shag Harbor. And they'd say, mm, maybe, I don't know. At the time, remember in the 90s when I'm doing this, this case, the Shelburne case is already 33 years old then. And these guys don't write down cheat notes. You know, I mean, you're in the Navy, you're told to forget it, right? You know, you don't yeah. run these missions. And then he says, um, maybe, I don't think so. And then I can remember in that first interview, and I'll tell you, I've learned over the years, Martin, the first interviews, first impressions are crucial. And uh, I think you can see this even in psychological tests, like a looser color test, where they'll get a, a person upon the first time to do it twice, but you go by that first result, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's often something in that first interview before they start to filter and edit their answers or, you know, the concerns grow when they see how far you're pushing for answers, you know, and pushing their buttons maybe even. But um, so they're saying, like, yeah, you know, about Shelburne, no, Oak by the base. And they said, yeah, it might have been then. No, I thought it was around the Cuban Missile Crisis back then. Well, that would have been October 62. And that statement always stayed with me. So anyway, when they tell the story, they're a bit unclear, you know, even in the conversation before I did the face-to-face interviews in the home, that, uh, you know, it wasn't clear what the time frame was or this sort of thing. But when I went there, um, but it was clear from the first phone call that the Shelburne story uh, was quite different than my memory of the Shag Harbor incident. My memory as a 12-year-old boy was from reading it in the newspaper and hearing the account of my grandfather, who was one of the many non-reporting witnesses in the area of Shag Harbor back in 67. And and it was very odd because, you know, it was clear we were talking about something quite different. That They were saying, well, you know, off Shelburne, the expression that all the divers said was, you know, there was no doubt off Shelburne. No, off, off Shelburne, it was alien. They go, Shag Harbor was a real case, but by the time we got there, you know, it was pretty much over. You know, it had gone and whatever. But he said in uh, Shelburne, there's no doubt. He says, we came face to face with aliens under the water. And, you know, I was like, mm, okay. 
Now, it may sound funny, but like my friend Bob McDonald and the other people I'd involved with at the time that were trying to guide me, one of them being the late Stanton Friedman, um, they found that very exciting. And strangely enough, I didn't because I had this weird ideal in my mind, Martin. I thought, you know, I'm not going to have the problems that Stanton had in Roswell. I'm not going to have multiple locations. I'm not going to have, yes, it happened here. No, it happened there. Or, Hmm. you know, all kinds of add on tales and questions later. And I thought, yeah, okay. Well, I knew you couldn't pick or choose your data and I'd listened to everything they said respectfully, but I, you know, I certainly didn't prioritize it. And when I went to the home, um, man, you know, the, the, this story went way beyond what I knew about Shag Harbor and what everything up to that point had led me to go. But again, it was open as to whether they were connected. You know, we knew the date of Shag Harbor. Um, and by the way, the, uh, the former head of the unit that had given me the contact information with these men said that one of them had dove and I was seeking him out on both missions, right? And he thought there was only one only. Turned out he was right. But uh, thus began the wild ride that it was. And I think the book portrays it. The first half of this little book I've done with you, by the way, thank you so much for, you know, writing a forward to it, you know, and expressing your opinion. My pleasure. Yeah, it was. uh, So you've got a leg up on this one over most people. The thing is, in the book, as you know, it's like, I wasn't that enthused at first. I thought I saw the Shelburne story as a problem. And all the people that were helping me at the time, and they were many, they were like local friends. They were people like Stan Preben, members of MUFON, who were trying to contribute as word was leaking out of the progress I'd made on, you know, the documentation of the Shag Harbor incident. That uh, they couldn't understand my lack of enthusiasm for it. You know, I mean, future co-authors of mine like Don Ledger would look at me and say, don't you think that's the meat and potatoes of the case? That's the wrap up. You know, you're saying they got away under the water. Why didn't it? And I had a million reasons why I thought, well, maybe, but I'm not impressed, but that would certainly change over time. But anyway, because of that ambiguity and the fact that yes, co-authors, television producers, editors, certainly, uh, text editors in the books and whatever thought, you know, Shag Harbor is so much stronger if you, they are connected. And I didn't know enough that I could say that it wasn't, but I never felt good about it, Martin, right from the start. Mm-hmm. I always had questions and issues. And the thing is, you know, the Shag Harbor case, when you look at the outline, the shell of what happened there was so strong and so certain and so well documented, I had a problem that the ending wouldn't have been either. And if Shelburne was merely the ending you know the the grand finale of it um it should have been more solid and it was the one part of the story unlike everything else to do with shag harbor where there didn't seem to be any supporting documentation and that wasn't good enough for me Hmm. and and you dove right into trying to find that out and oh yeah yeah and then how did that go (laughs) <laughs> poorly at first yeah. and and not great for 29 years <laughs> yeah but i learned a lot i'll tell you and the first the first section of the book i i've warned people that you know before we get into aliens under the water anyone that wants to take on the challenge of reading this little book is that the first half of the book is the quest it's yes. the quest 
the 29 years I spent with blind alleys, making mistakes, boy, it'd be a great lesson, I think, for anybody, you know, that way. But uh, Well, I'll tell you what, I I really enjoyed that part of the book myself mm. because it shows how thorough and how uh, unforgiving you are when it comes to letting go of something. You just just, uh, kept pursuing where I think most people would just kind of like, okay, it's just too much. I can't. Uh, I can't do it. You know, uh, so. Yeah. Stanton used to call me the bulldog. Yeah. He he would grin and he'd say, man, you know, if if you're interviewing him and people would ask, what's the story about Styles anyway? He would always say, oh, he's a bulldog. You know, he gets on you or there's something hidden. Look out. You know, he ain't going away. You know, it just persists. And, yeah. and, you know, that's largely true. But, I mean, and you know yourself from having, you know, read the book, of course, is that, you know, in several chapters, it takes many forms of, like, it wasn't just simply, you know, a paper chase with Ottawa, you know, with our National Archives, right, now mm-hmm. known as Library and Archives Canada. It took many forms. People would call with stories. Uh, I would question websites and tear them apart and talk to the people who'd set them up. And I would find mistakes in the rears. I would go through like ship's logs for dozens of destroyer escorts and find one little discrepancy between that and what was on a website of someone's memory of, you know, picking up girls in Montreal the same weekend this happened. And I would look into it. I would contact people. I would like pound the pavement. I would flesh it out. And, you know, when there was an error, it had to be accounted for because it's just the way I am. You know, I just... You know, it's like Columbo. I have this little problem, you know, with this record, you know, because, you know, we all know governments and bureaucracies. And certainly when you get in things like navies and ships captain, you know, paperwork is methodical, meticulous. Mistakes are made, but they're pretty rare. They're pretty yeah. rare and the cost can be high, you know. So I always thought through all those years of searching and, and like anyone that reads the book will see all the different methods that were applied and used and the logic of how we got there and the arguments I got. I mean, in the beginning, I think there's a bit of humor there when friends of mine would look at me and they'd say, you know what you are? You're a spoiled brat. They'd say, you know, Shag Harbor, you know, you just go on to this, your first case and, you know, everything's coming up great, you know, and it's wild and that. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the Shelburne case is connected. And I think it's all that in a bag of chips, they would tell me. But, Look, if I wasn't looking for meat and potatoes, like Don Ledger used to say, and if I wasn't, I wasn't looking for chips either, you know, Got mm. too many of them laying around the house. And the thing is, I wanted, I wanted the evidence. I wanted the proof. I wanted to know because the stories that these divers told, uh, you know, when I was in the homes was, was just crazy, you know, not because they weren't the first people to talk about aliens, but when they would first, you know, get into the details i would ask the questions and i seen the turmoil it caused them eventually fear and how the interviews would break down i mean these were men you know if you're a diver and i spoke to divers that were in both the canadian navy the royal canadian navy and the united states navy you know that's a tough gig that's a tough gig you know these guys do nasty work you know hauling bodies out of dead aircraft that have crashed yeah just nasty stuff you know it's 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 tough and, and the requirements to do well and rise through the ranks in it are not easy. And when you meet these men, if there's ever such a thing as, you know, men of iron, you know, there may not be many wooden ships anymore. The, these guys are it. 
Mm. And when I would push for answer and when they would, you know, get into the details, you know, and I'd see them eventually reach a point where they couldn't make eye contact with me and look at the floor and start to tear up or tell me I had to move on. It made an impression on me. I never, you know, you knew this and I'd hit this time and again. Bear in mind when I say this time and again, there's not a great deal that would talk. I mean, 19 out of 20, you'd go to the door and you'd knock and they'd just say, we can't talk about that and slam the door. Mm. You know, and they look fearful, some of them, when they said it and say, oh, you know, they would be an expletive or they'd swear and slam the door, you know. And mm. But the ones who did, they would start out saying, yeah, I, I guess it's okay. Eventually, uh, the word got out from Maritime Command not to talk to me, you know, but mm, no one told me not to try. So Yeah. I think uh, I think it would be good if we could lay out just um, exactly. We'll start with uh, you know Shelburne, mm. and since that happened in 1960, and just about the whole exercise and everything sure. that you know about it. Let's lay that out for the okay for, that's uh, unfamiliar with it. Let me just take a minute or two to set up 1960 because in a way that's almost a character here. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of difference in the world, obviously, between today's world and the 2020s here and the 60s. But people, you know, who didn't live through it or aren't aficionados of history may not realize there is a huge difference between 67 and 60. Mm -hmm. And I think I addressed that early on in the book. In 1960, people still had faith in their government. You know, you wouldn't have found any of the attitudes you see nowadays. I would also remind you, there had yet to be a manned space mission. Hmm. The Russians would be first with Yuri Gagarin, and that was seven yeah. months in the future from this incident, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a different world that way. Eisenhower still president. Kennedy's taking over is some months away, right? In fact, he hasn't been elected yet. He's running against what? Nixon, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. So 1960, a very different time, a very different time. And, you know, the world had forgotten about Roswell. I don't think too many were aware of Betty Hill, you know, this kind of thing. Yes, people were aware of UFOs. You know, it was the well into the dawn of the modern era. But anyway, a very, very different time than, you know, 1967, even 60. But here's what happens, according to the men. And remember, they're without dates, so if I fill them in, it's because I discovered them later. And, well, obviously the date. Let's get specific. The incident actually occurs on October the 12th, 1960, in Shelburne Harbor and the Outer Harbor behind what, beyond what's known as McNabb's Island. And the nature of the mission is this. It's a NATO mission, a NATO mine-sweeping exercise. And it's the fifth of a series of them that have been carried out annually. Back in those days, Canada still had a large Navy, which we certainly do not now. We had a 60-ship Navy for a country that had a population at the time under 20 million. You know, that, that was a large Navy. It was actually, for a brief period, the third largest in the world. And uh, we worked very closely with the United States Navy on numerous NATO exercises of all nature, whether it was we still had aircraft carrier, we still had, uh, you know, lots of destroyer escorts and annual missions were common, uh, you know, in different theaters around the world. But uh, mine sweeping was a big theme still then. And uh, this mission involved 18 warships, 
there were, were eight Canadian and 10 U.S. minesweeping vessels. Now, uh, to be specific, in the American complement in the U.S. Navy, you had eight minesweepers and you had one large ship, which was the USS Orleans Parish, uh, a countermeasures ship. And you also had a loop layer, which was the, uh, which one did they have? The Yazoo, the Yazoo, which ends up playing a part in this. And then you, in the Canadian Navy, we had six minesweepers. And since we were in Canadian waters, this NATO mission was under Canadian command. And the command ship was Her Majesty's Canadian ship, Cape Scott, which was a, like a 450-foot ship. It was a supply ship, but it also worked as a floating headquarters and was used in NATO operations every year in Bermuda and that. It also had other special functions. It had an eight-bed hospital. It had a full decompression chamber on it for divers. So she was the command ship on this mission. And what the mission was, what was supposed to be carried out, was that on the outside of Shelburne Harbor, they laid an eight-mile course. And the U.S. ships went there first and laid down uh, an eight-mile course of dummy mines. And... Um, then the sweepers were sent in to clear these. And in this eight-mile dog lake course, the mission was basically to try and get all the mines up that had been moored or were laying on the bottom or hidden in some way. And the two big ships, the big Canadian and the big U.S. ship, which would have been the Orleans Parish and Cape Scott, were to pass through this eight-mile dog legged course. And if they did so, uh, there are some of the uh, typical mine sweepers. Those would have been U.S. ones, sir. I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually in the book, I actually found a picture from Shelburne Harbor uh, mid-mission where the Cape Scott is at anchor with four of our minesweepers beside from October the 15th of, of the mission. Anyway, here's the thing. The, that was their mission to pass through. So when the mission begins and... Um, well, it, it, I suppose technically it began, it, it actually was meant to span about three weeks when you look at the setup of the course, preparations in Halifax Harbor, the arrival of other U.S. Navy ships. What happened is, is on the 12th, the ships assemble at the start of the Dog Lake course, and the two big ships begin to make their way through. Now, what's interesting here is that what I found was that when I look back at my interview notes from the time, from the different interviews, is the men claimed that it was when the ships got assembled and they began trying to pass through the Dog Lake course, everything went good, as they said, for about an hour, and then all hell broke loose. And they sent the divers down, and that's where they encounter two UFOs sitting on the seabed and, you know, aliens moving around in the water. Well, and boy, I'll never forget, it was hard to get the details of, you know, at first they just want to say, well, there was still activity in the water, you know, well, mm -hmm. what kind of activity? And it was like every little bit at the point and the interviews would start breaking down. You know, at first they'd be talking quite openly and these guys would look at the floor and they'd say, I have to move on. We can't talk about that part. But they were clear, oh, yeah, and panic broke out on the boat and all this. Well, you know, pretty wild story for 1960. Hmm. When you're talking ships. And of course, every time, here's the clincher. Why did it take me 29 years? Whenever you'd ask, what ships? Can you name a ship? No. You know, no, can't do that. Well, 
what year was it? Well, it was back around the Cuban Missile Crisis. So oh, it might have been 67. We don't know. You know, so there was all this ambiguity in its first telling. So when I'm telling you these details, these only, you know, where, and I'm naming these dates, this only becomes possible in 2022, literally around New Year's Day, that first week that I start making the breakthroughs, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, yes, so I go back to my notes from the interviews, which happened on Good Friday of 1993. God, I remember that day. It was Mm -hmm. a holiday, why we did it. Uh, in the evening at the home. They didn't even want to let me in at first. It, this, all this came so close to not happening. You know, mm-hmm. at so many points, you know that from reading the books, the details are, are yeah. bizarre. There were so many ways. And uh, anyway, there's the thing. They're set up. They're entering this course. And according to those old interviews, when I look back at my interview notes, it said about an hour in, all hell broke loose. We encountered the aliens. So now back in 2022 by that summer i have the ship's log of the command ship okay hmcs cape scott so i'm going through the log book and you know since they're directing 18 ships in this nato mission there's a lot of naval jargon which i'm pretty good with you know i've done enough research you know on paper and have enough terminology and enough background in it that you know i'm I, but i'm just being cautious and meticulous and going through all the little details so I figure about an hour in, I should find something that looks like panic. Okay. Well, I get to 60 minutes and there's nothing. I stop, make a coffee and come back to it and keep going down. And you got to remember, like I say, when they're telling the story, it's from 33 years of memory. And they mm-hmm. don't want to name the ship or the date. I don't imagine they knew the date anymore. Because I think that first answer when one of the divers, the one uses the pseudonym Harry, um, who, by the way, is later named in this book, if you can figure out which one of the seven Shag Harbor divers he is, because that has been published since by others. So I felt, you know, that's an interesting point, you know, and if you really do your own work, you can figure out who told that detail. But, okay, here's the thing. I, I get to 90 minutes in, and suddenly there's they come to a complete stop, and the ship's obviously there's something gone really off because they lower lifeboats divers go down and then there's something there that when i first read it i even though i i know the jargon and i knew the abbreviations at the time and how things are recorded it it didn't even register through all these there's a couple points in missions like this typically where you might see the defense level raise most people would have some rough awareness of the defcon system Mm-hmm. At this point in 1960, Canada had been part of that for only one full year, you know, with the U.S., right? We'd signed a special thing to say we would match defense levels and defend each other, particularly at sea with our navies, you know, or, or come upon call for missions. Now, DEFCON and the way you see it portrayed in movies is, you know, the one thing they often get, right? Although, you know what I find so funny, Martin, is so often they have the numbers backwards, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Five is peacetime. Everything's cool and calm, as good as it gets. Right. Mm. One is nuclear war. Okay. They (laughs) often get them reversed in the movies. I find that quite funny. You know how much research they do. Anyway. So. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, the defense level, the DEFCON level is usually set by, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know what I mean? It comes from the Pentagon, right, or the president directly. 
you know, as commander in chief, right? However, what many people don't know is commanders in the field can raise it in their area specifically, right? But if you read up on that, if you go to, you know, like uh, even Wikipedia or something more scholarly online, or you go to the library, what you'll find is all claim that no commander in the field that's part of the DEFCON system has ever gone to DEFCON 1. In fact, at the time, I, I know this is starting to change now, probably since the book leaking out, but I could only find one rumor of it in West Germany. And when, when the guy explains it, it pretty much it, it looked like it was fiction in the end. And he conceded that himself, although he remembered his dad telling him. However, I get to this point in the book. And remember, now we're talking, I've got the official ship's log in my hand, right? Or a rendition of it. And I get to 90 minutes into that mission on October the 12th, which is about, you know, just 1230, just afternoon. And I see assume DEFCON 1. Hmm. DEFCON 1. You know, that state that has never happened by right, any right. commander in the field. Yeah. And a special stamp goes on the bottom of the page and the captain signs off on it and that, right? Now, you look up at the time, but particularly because they've changed slightly over the year, both in U.S. forces and here as to what the levels mean. But it was very clear what they meant in 1960. Extremely clear. It was short and sweet. It meant that nuclear war is imminent or has begun. Jeez. That's how it's defined. Now, or, or and that you can engage an enemy without, you know, seeking clearance first, right? Well, when I first look at it, I'm like, no, 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 maybe it's, maybe I'm not seeing he meant to write four and he didn't, but the penmanship was good. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, all the right verbiage is there and even the verb matters. And that's typically how it's, how it's uh, put down in orders like that or when they record the defense, uh, you know, readiness level at the time. Uh, if you increase it, you assume it. If you bring it down, it's called reversion. You revert it, right? And I just see, and it's quite clear. Now, in those days, they didn't actually write out DEFCON, and you can see it going up and down. I've looked at many missions and always check the DEFCON levels when they're doing things. And, uh, you know, for most of what I've looked at, and I've looked at thousands of logbooks of Canadian and U.S. ships, you typically see five. There might be unless you go to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you'll certainly find uh, three there. Now, think about this. The Cuban Missile Crisis, you know how close that came to heating up. Mm. DEFCON 3, except for SAC, Strategic Air Command, which did go to two. Okay? Yeah. Shelburne okay. Harbor, suddenly we go from five to one. Wow. They lower lifeboats, and there's there's all kinds of strange orders going out in that. Well, what was that? And this is where they predicted, you know, things went wrong. You know, give or take 30 minutes, right? After 33 years of memory and fog, right? The men tell me all hell broke loose. The ship went into a panic. Well, I didn't expect to see that. And maybe the men didn't know what was recorded by the brass. You know, no one said, well, you're going to find DEFCON 1 or you're going to find... You know, all I know is suddenly when they get to that part of the story, these guys would seize up, couldn't make eye contact, look at the floor, tear up, wave their hands, saying, you'll have to move on. I can't talk about that part. What do I find when do they get to that moment in time? And I could recognize it. 
though they hadn't given me the date because they said we, we assembled at the start. We start to go through the dog. Well, they didn't use dog leg, but the, you know, the course that we were to clear and we ran into these things. But yeah, they didn't write out DEFCON in those days. The Navy used to put, you know, DC1, DC2, DC3, you know, as the level. But it's quite clear. By three hours later, they're back to five, you know, back to peacetime. But at this point, the ship's anchor in seven fathoms of water. That's only 42 feet. Right. And they don't move for four days. Oh, wow. Go back to the exercise, you know. But, I mean, DEFCON 1, you know, I, I'm like, wow. I'm just wondering why that's not like in the history books or something, you know I mean? Oh, well, why not? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it had to be reported to somebody, right? Yeah. I'll tell you the next thing that happens is like I say, it was under Canadian command because we're in our member in those days was only a 12 mile international limit, right? We're in Shelburne Harbor. The next thing that happens, you know, they fly the Admiral of the East Coast fleet out to the ship and land them on the Cape Scott. Okay. And, um, Unfortunately, I, you know, I've actually been lucky enough over the years to talk to or interview some of the Canadian admirals. Unfortunately, the admiral in this case, I never met, didn't know at the time that he was in command of this mission or had been involved. And, uh, but I did an amazing forensic analysis of his command style and his history, you know, which went back through World War II and that. And uh, it's quite amazing because this fella, uh, Admiral Rear Admiral Ken Dyer is his name. He uh, he was the fella in charge of the Atlantic Fleet during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and um, it's a a controversial period in Canadian history. If you read Canadian history books about it, um, the stories here, if you live in Halifax, Dartmouth, still resound, and all boys that grew up in Navy families heard it. Because here's the controversy: is that he went to Ottawa and actually met with our prime minister at the time, which was conservative John Diefenbaker and John Kennedy was actually in the office with them. Kennedy hmm. blew up because he wanted to have the, our Atlantic fleet monitor and, and chase down Russian subs in the North Atlantic. So it would free up more ships for the Cuban blockade. Mm -hmm. And the prime minister refused. And huh. this was just one year after we'd signed this agreement, both on DEFCON and what's called the CAN-US agreement to, you know, support each other no matter what, under each other's command if need be. And, uh, you know, Kennedy, and it was an awful situation. It eventually led to the prime minister's downfall here at the time. But when the meeting was over, Dyer was called in and the defense minister was there and the prime minister and said, we're not going to do this. Those ships aren't to move. We're not going to do what the Americans want. We're not getting dragged into this. Right. He left that office and he went right down and contacted Norfolk and said, what do you want me to do? And he took U.S. orders directly. Mm -hmm. And a very controversial character. There's been much written about it in this country since there's a chapter that deals with it in the book. And um, but also it was a great insight when you look at his interpretation, when he talked about it years later, why he did what he did. Now, it's important because since I didn't get to interview him before he passed, here's the thing. It says a great deal about how he might have treated this mission, which, by the way, he designed that mind sweeping mission. 
Hmm. And he was the one who flew out to it once this happened, right? We don't know what happened. When you read deck logs in the ship, it doesn't say why they do what they do. It never does. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I've read deck logs on incidents that we know historically, you know, where 19 lives were lost in peacetime because of an explosion in a boiler room. It tells you all the d- details of what happened when and what they did. It doesn't tell you why. It doesn't tell you that, you know, this thing blew up or, you know, it's mm. bare bones outline, right? It's what yeah. needs to be done. Now, let me jump into one more thing before you have any questions, if you do, um, is that, um, you know, when you think about it, of course, what I heard early on is, you know, when I first started bouncing this off people to get the ration or saying, well, why couldn't it be a Russian sub sitting in Shelburne Harbor? Well, there are, there are a lot of reasons. First of all, remember, they've they've all dropped anchor in 42 feet of water. If you had a sub even sitting on the bottom, you could have looked up over the side and seen the conning tower. Maybe That's right. below the waves, particularly at low tide, right? Yeah. The other thing, when you look at the command structure and the history of this fellow in times of warfare, and he was considered a real hawk here, the admiral that was in charge of this mission, there's no way he would let a Russian sub in the Cold War sit on the bottom of Shelburne Harbor. They would have had a very bad day indeed, you know. Yeah. And, of course, with U.S. allies right there, you know, between the personal embarrassment of it and the fact, you know, they had nothing better to do. They would have had great sport with that thing. The other thing is, again, one more time to remind you of 1960. I mean, the first nuclear sub even in the U.S., the Nautilus, only became, went to sea in, what, 1955? This is five years later. I'm not sure that the uh, Russians had any operational nuclear subs then. Mm. If there was a sub, it would have been diesel electric. And if you ever see a detailed recounting of the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was one of the big problems. Most of those subs they sent down, those Zulu class and other classes, like, my God, they couldn't operate in warm waters, right? They would come to the surface. The men were dying in them just from the heat, you know. Mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Never do that. So yeah, DEFCON one didn't wasn't expecting that, but I was like, uh, "Wow, yeah, yeah, that really that really is." I remember um, hearing about. Well, I want to get into the detail and why they were so sure that it was alien. These were alien beings, and they the people okay. that you interviewed, they both said basically the same thing. Can you just give a couple more details? You know, the people that were diving and, and all that, the, sure. the witnesses. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing is, you know, obviously when this story was first related to me, you know, I, I pushed for details. You know, you, you just can't simply say. And at first it was, you know, so general they said, well, when we went down, there was still activity. Well, what do you mean activity? Well, there were beans in the water. What kind of beans? Alien beans. Well, okay, how can you be sure? And they go, oh, we were sure. And go, but we, we, we weren't there long. The brass wasn't long in getting us topside again, you know. And, and you got to remember, when, when the divers are telling me the story in 93, no one's talking about we went to DEFCON 1 and we nearly caused a, you know, a nuclear incident or something. They're just simply saying, geez, they yanked us out of the water and we sat in those ships over there for days, right? I think what's interesting here is, when they when they talk oh well here here's a good detail so 
um, one of the divers I, I talked to and um, who I've met twice since and is still alive, but will tell no more. Um, he actually filmed this. Oh. And that film was turned to the Defense Research Establishment in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, which was part of the old Defense Research Board back in the day. And um, so outside of their stories, there should be this. They did collect some debris. They believed that these two USOs that were sitting on the seabed in Shelburne Harbor, that one of them had been damaged and the other was trying to lend some kind of assistance to it. And this was the nature of the activity. But, I mean, they didn't observe it for a great period of time. Some drop cameras were lowered afterwards. But initially, one of the men, his specialty was underwater photographer. And, by the way, as Martin knows, because he's, you know, he's seen the book, of course, but he knows my techniques, too. When somebody told me this, of course, I went into their background. You know, there's a great thing in Halifax at the uh, library, uh, a collection of what's called Might City directory. It was something that used to be across North America in the old days, and it actually would give you uh, a lot of personal information about a person. You'd have their phone number and their street, but it would also tell you the nature of their work, who they worked for. And when you look it up, it said, you know, underwater naval photographer. You know, so, you know, these guys checked out in terms, you know, I didn't just take the story. I mean, first of all, why would they have the story? I was directed to them by somebody. They weren't warned, you know, Here's another interesting detail, too, about the story. Despite all this, and that was exciting, I remember them telling me. And over the next few days when I'd go back to try to do follow-up, eventually, you know, they were burnt. They weren't going to say anymore. I wasn't welcome. Okay. And I could see that was coming. You know, it was a time for me to kind of set it aside. And, of course, I kept hearing, you know, all the criticisms from those that were helping me at the time. And, you know, the former heads of MUFON, et cetera, here in Canada, people that just loaned their expertise on military matters or whatever. And they found it hard. And I kept saying, well, listen, if this is real, and I, I felt it was, you know, I, I believe the veracity of the men. But I'm sorry, you don't move that many ships. Remember, at the time, I don't know what the mission's called. And by the way, that that is the title of the book that's the name of the mission sweep clear five okay this nato exercise that's part of history you can find that online certainly but the thing is you know it took me 29 years to come up with that uh they wouldn't tell me the names of ships they didn't even tell me what kinds of ships like when all they did in terms of mines was say i'd say well why were you diving in the first place and they would say Oh, they had us frigging around with some kind of new British influence mine. An influence mine is one you don't actually have to make contact to detonate it, right? That, you know, yeah. you can set it so that, you know, if a metal ship is in within a certain proximity, up it goes, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't stress it was a mine-sweeping mission. And that's part of what threw me off because I figured, okay, mm -hmm. you know, a, a mission mm -hmm. like this down in Shelburne with uh, so many American ships had to involve a destroyer escort at least. So I kept looking for a destroyer escort log books with nothing more to go on than that from the right, the assumed time frame. Now remember, we didn't know it was 1960 then. Okay. Mm -hmm. But before I forget all that, before we jump into how I eventually work all that out, let me tell you the thing that impressed me most about the witnesses is not the divers themselves. You know, everybody kept thinking, well, you should be. And 
it would be wrong to say I wasn't, but I thought I need something else. But before I got the real something else, I ran into a friend of mine who I'd worked with at a former newspaper, a daily tabloid here in Metro, which was called simply the Daily News here that ran for years. We were both contract couriers at the time, and I used to look after a bunch of vending machines. And every night I would see him. And I knew this fellow had, is, he's, he goes under the pseudonym Jim in the book. He had a, a lengthy career with the Royal Canadian Air Force. And his specialty, uh, I didn't know it at the time, was identification of wreckage. You know, that was, his, you know, he did other missions and that, but that was his, his, what he was trained in specifically. Well, after I left the position and the contract was over, uh, I ran into him once a couple of years later. And by the way, again, it's 1993, the same year. I first heard the story from the divers in April. This would have been August of that year. I was coming over the West End Mall in Halifax, and I ran into Jim. And Jim says, oh, my God, the things you see when you don't have a gun. And I said, what kind of Canadian are you with a gun? I said, you're supposed to use a knife. You know, we laughed, you know. Yeah. What are you doing these days? I said, you wouldn't believe me. And he said, try me. And I had a little satchel in those days that had some Shag Harbor documents, and I hauled them out. And he just looked at them for a second, saw the headline story in the newspaper, could be something concrete in Shag Harbor, UFO, RCAF. And he goes, oh, my God, how did you hear about that? Remember that? And I realized that the minute he starts talking, he's not thinking that what I showed him is about Shag Harbor, but about Shelburne. And he seems to know about it. And when he starts talking, the first thing I do is interrupt him. And I go, Jim, I said, what are you talking about? I said, you weren't in the Navy. You were Air Force. <laughs> he said, I thought I was, because every time the Navy would scrape something up off the bottom or, you know, anything that ever looks like it flew or, you know, a plane would crash or they found some weird debris. He says, the next thing you know, I was on some Navy ship. He says, God, Chris, I couldn't have been a sailor. I hated it. Sleeping in a hammock, somebody's socks hanging in your face. He said, I, you know, and every time the water churned up a bit, he says, I was sick and over the side, you know, and all this. So I said, yeah, I said, well, what do you know about Shelburne? And he was saying, oh, man, he says, uh, I don't know. I said, what did you see? Oh, he says, don't get too excited. He says, I didn't see anything. You know what I did all week? He said, I read Westerns and drank beer down in the down in the galley. I mean, Canadian Navy, there was alcohol, okay? Mm -hmm. He said, I just sat there reading Westerns. He said, the only crazy mission I was on, they never showed me a thing. They never explained a thing. I was just there. But he said, I heard the talk. He said, the divers, they'd be down there every night in their corner in a huddle. He said, they were talking some pretty crazy stuff. And I said, like what? He said, well, they said they were sitting over aliens. There was two flying saucers underneath the ship. And that mm -hmm. they'd seen them and they'd filmed them and all this. And it was pretty crazy. And they'd get worked up. And every now and then somebody would tell them. And he said, but boy, the last day of the mission before we started sailing back, he said, all hell broke loose, he said. The Americans came aboard, and some officer come down in the whites. Now, he said, the men were pretty good down there. When U.S. sailors come short aboard enlisted men, they made them feel quite welcome and, you know, loved to try to get them to drink and all this. But he said uh, the officers were never appreciated when they went down below to the galley. So this guy comes in, he's wandering around, and the divers are talking about the aliens again in the corner in the huddle. And the U.S. officer goes over to them and says hi to them and leans in and suggests to them that they shouldn't be talking shop. And they certainly shouldn't be talking about that Soviet sub they're sitting over. 
And at that point, one of the divers, Harry, as he's called in the book, just jumps up and the table flips over and he grabs the officer. And his friends all try to grab him to stop him because, I mean, <laughs> big no-no, of course, right? Yeah. And But I love the way that Jim remembered it. It's a better version than Harry told it to me. He kind of watered down. He says, oh, he grabbed the guy. He said it was a bad scene. He says, I figured, oh, God, he's gone. They'll send him ashore. He's going to the brig for sure. And um, he said, that's the trouble with you Yankee boys, he said. This huh? is how what did he said. You see the red menace everywhere. He said, well, there might be some menace below us, he said. But he said, it ain't from the Black Sea or Moscow. He says, maybe Mars, I think a lot farther out. He says, but I know one thing. He said, it, uh, if it wanted to do something, there's nothing we could do about it, he said. And it's not bothering us, so I hope you don't have any plans to go all John Wayne on it or something. Hmm. And eventually, you know, once they break his hold of the officer, the officer runs upstairs and the captain comes down below and he's just sent away, you know. But he remembered this, and I'm, I'm like, you know, it went with what I'd been told. I didn't tell him I'd already seen the divers. Well, he just, this just comes out of them. And, but the same thing, of course, I said, well, do you have any idea what ship you're on or whatever? And all of a sudden, it's like he's in a trance, and he snaps out of it. He had a grandson with him, and he was taking him to, well, get this summer. It's Canada, a hockey practice. Uh -huh. He grabs yeah. the, the big kit bag. He goes, um, I got to go. Good luck with that. He says, you do your own dirty work, son. He said, uh -huh. no. No. And I said, well, no, no, just a minute. Come here. He said, yeah, let's do this again in 20 years. Goodbye. Uh, yeah. 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 But I knew so, this guy well, you know, so. Yeah. So let me ask, so as far as I'm, I'm trying to envision what they claim that they saw, there was the, the damaged uh, vessel, whatever it was, or flying saucer, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And then were these like beings that were like floating on the outside of it working yeah. on it is that yeah. grays typical grays by just they didn't really? use that term but by description it was what someone would think of as a typical gray right and were they were they using any oxygen type breathing or were they just i never got those around? details they wouldn't <laughs> get those details you know yeah. what i'm hoping for is the film yeah, I know. I mean, the if film. it exists, and and still, I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it exists. If it hasn't disintegrated, if it hasn't been preserved, that it exists somewhere. And you know, I mean, there's so many films that most likely exist somewhere that would yeah. be really something to see. Yeah. And there's explanation in the book, as you know, about the strange history. I mean, our Defense Research Board, particularly the Naval section, started back in World War II. And, and was very independent. And even though it got rolled into Ottawa's command, it operated autonomously, you know, with no oversight, not even any legislation, not even today. And it even explains that now, if you went to, again, a source like Wikipedia, and you look up what's now called, oh God, these things get branded over the years so many times, Martin, but Defense Research and Development Canada, it currently is called. Mm -hmm. And if you read about the Atlantic Division, it lists one thing there that's very different from all the other. There's still 11 facilities across Canada, like, you know, uh, the Experimental Air Station in Suffield, Quebec, uh, Suffield, uh, Alberta, I'm sorry, or Valcartier, Quebec, and all the locations and that. But when you read about the Atlantic facility, one of their, their mission things in the list of their mission statement is, I love this, knowledge management. <laughs> 
Uh, and, and which yeah. they take very seriously, I think, there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and the stories abound. But I mean, and there's great personal stories too in the book about how, you know, when I talk about, I mean, the Canadian Navy employing a parapsychologist in the sixties. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, and it's quite legit. And then the involvement of and there are some American names that surface, like Vannevar Bush, you know, and the reason being is in World War Two, all research and development, all military development went through him, you know, through the war. But mm -hmm. as soon as the war was over, that ended under Truman, right? And mm -hmm. it was taken from him and largely given to industry directly after that. And it's all explained in the book, you know. And this is based on some PhD um, dissertations and, and that were done specifically on this. You know, it's all quite well sourced, right? But I mean, the explanation, the, the parapsychologist, that one's a little different. But yeah, I mean, when you look at it, the Navy, uh, the way they handled UFO cases, see, they weren't responsible to the public. But the Air Force would ask them or they'd run into them on their own. And I explain in the book the neat things like, you know, when the Air Force handles a case, it'll have a code number like 67-800-whatever and all the military jargon and protocol. A Navy UFO report on the bottom would just have, like, a, I think I described it as a smudgy bowling pencil. They'd print off the telex and just write case 120, case 121, you know. It was a pretty loose filing system, and nobody knows where that one ended up, right? But, uh, it, you know, it's like, I, I love this, you know. You, here's another thing. When you interview these guys, they'd say, well, they sent us to the bottom with their UFO detectors. And I'd be like, UFO detector? Go, yeah, a 16-foot dirty iron rod with a, you know, rusty rod with a sweaty man on one end poking through the ooze, you know. <laughs> so they had a sense of humor about it. But, yeah. You know, it, it's kind of like that scene in uh, some of the alien uh, sequels where the guys are saying, oh, God, another bug hunt, you know, this kind of thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to get to a couple of questions that have come in. Um, this, Great. this this is just, a, you know, a speculative question. What is most likely the connection with the bodies of water and UFO or as called USO submergible? Yeah. Uh, but uh, that is well. I'll give my opinion first, and whatever yours is is also uh, welcome. But um, you, you think of it this way: you know, the Earth is seventy-three percent, I think, water. Uh, so maybe it's a place for them to, if they're here and researching whatever temporarily, whatever a place for them to uh, go undetected. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's easy to hide. The other thing is that um, you know. There's a number of things. That's one of them for sure, Martin. Another one would be the fact that you had, uh, you know, you had a grid. The uh, the Sosa system came ashore at Shelburne. In fact, there were 64 stations, sonar stations that listened for and tracked nuclear subs in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And they came ashore at various points, but the coordination center for this was the Shelburne base. When the base first opened, it was actually a U.S. base on Canadian soil and in 1955. And by 1962, it came under an arrangement like NORAD, you know, where it was shared 50-50 with Canadian staff. But the coordination center, hard linked with Argentia, Newfoundland, and Key West, Florida, was Shelburne. 
So that was the focal point of the Sosa system and another another system called the MADGRID, for, which stood for an acronym for Magnetic Anomaly Detection, right? Uh, that was only used near the coast. It was a backup to confirm Sosa's data, right? Um, but the system was often fooled. Uh, one of the cool things I uncovered is, like, we have a sense of how good that data was and that, that Shelburne base could do. In fact, you know, during the Mercury Space Program, you know, when the first seven U.S. astronauts went up, when they would land, when the Mercury capsule would hit the water surface upon reentry, it would set off a special charge that Shelburne would listen for. Oh. And it was done to measure its effectiveness and also to be a backup in case, you know, it came down farther out to sea and they'd lost tracking, right? Mm -hmm. But they were able, by a time differential system, to pinpoint the location. And, of course, it matched the visual and radar data of the time, right? So it had that kind of sensitivity, um, you know, over those kind of distances, right? But 64 stations where it came ashore all connected to Shelburne. So there's another reason. The other thing... It, one of the things I reveal in the book, and it's still not officially admitted to, but it is at the other nearby SOSA station that used to be in Argentia, Newfoundland, is uh, the U.S. used it to store nuclear weapons there to stockpile what they call Lulus. Mm -hmm. Now, Lulus were n nuclear, nuclear depth charges, uh, about an 11 kiloton yield. And they have not officially admitted they were at Shelburne, but they were at the other bases in Argentia. But I've been told by weapons techs, weapons tech that worked at the base that, yes, they were stored at Shelburne, too. So, again, you have that, or it's often been suggested that nuclear technology will attract UFOs, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the special technology, I think, of the SOSA system listening to the whole ocean. Um, you know, the fact that water makes it easy to hide. Mm. Uh, Combine another reason potentially is there's a long history of UFO. Well, look at Shag Harbor some years later of mm -hmm. these very solid cases, uh, mm -hmm. you know, happening in that area of Nova Scotia, right? Right. Perhaps it's geography. If you look at the map, I often refer to us, uh, uh, there's a term I like, you know, meteorologists call us the tailpipe in North America. Huh. You know, we kind of dangle out there into the Atlantic and often yeah. the, uh, the prevailing westerlies and the jet stream will be right over us, which is why our weather changes so often, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is another question here. Um, how many divers corroborated ET contact? Three directly that were part of the mission. The Air Force uh, consultant, but there were other divers. And the other divers were not on site, but had been told the story, were trained and debriefed by these men. Uh, particularly, the greatest insights actually came from a group of women, the first female divers in the Canadian Navy in the 80s. Um, for the first time, they were trained as divers aboard HMCS Cormorant, a diving platform. And uh, they worked very closely and knew these men. Some of them just knew them through the Army-Navy Club. But ironically, the men that were on the Shelburne mission in fact, one of them, as I explained in the book, never even talked to the other guys about it that he dove with at, at Shag Harbor. They were told wow. to get quiet. They were, it was impressed upon them in a big way and, uh, you know, not to speak. And whenever they did try to speak with comrades or guys they trusted where they might have figured, oh, what damage is going to do? And, you know, this is my buddy and I trust him with my life when we're down there. When they would talk, they eventually 
wouldn't do that because these guys, you know, they'd start telling the story and somebody in the back of the room would start making the sound of a theremin or something, right? And they just didn't get the respect. So all these things kind of conspired so that they didn't talk amongst, you know, their buddies so much. But strangely enough, when the women were let in and these guys were helping with their training and getting to know them just as friends and that, what they found was a very different attitude. This was, of course, you know, the, the generation lost in space. You know, to them, they could accept what these men were telling them, right? While still respecting, you know, they were training themselves and knew the difficulty of their missions, right? Of their work, of the life and death nature of it and how quickly things go wrong when below. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, interestingly enough, since these people were open to the fact that, you know, we're probably not alone in the universe and probably not even so upon our little blue planet, um, they found um, an audience that they felt comfortable talking to. And these women, you know, told the story and often added details I didn't get from the men who were actually there. Hmm. That's uh, well, here's another question related. Are any of are any of the divers still with us? One. One is one. He will say no more. I, I've met him on two occasions since. Um, actually worked with him once, but no, um, yeah, he's not going to go anymore. He never denied. He he confirmed the other diver's testimony. He admitted to shooting the film. He was the guy who actually shot the film. Oh, and turned yeah. it in. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there is one still alive. If not. Um, yeah. Like I say, I usually wait for someone else to, uh, you know, when I agree to grant a, a suit, you know, to the use of a pseudonym, um, it's something I rarely do. I discourage. I believe if we're ever going to drag all this thing into the life of day, we have to put our name to it. Yeah. And that came, you know, way back at a time when I just literally, I confess, I didn't really know what I was doing. I only because that was already granted on Shag Harbor. And if you read the book, you'll find that some of those names are, re every one of the seven divers on the Shag Harbor mission is now named first and last name in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the other books out there or documentaries out there that have the two conflated as one? Well, most things do. Yes. I yeah. mean, um, listen, to be quite frank, there were days I got up and I thought, yeah, well, it could be. I mean, because for so yeah. many years, I, I couldn't say it could or it couldn't. Sometimes you get a little tired of fighting it and everybody around you. When yeah. I did the shows, I would often argue with the producer or the editors and say, well, you know, I don't know that. it. Well, can you say it isn't? They go, it's so much stronger if we put this in. I go, yeah, well, I don't know that that's true. And I wanted to at least make sure it's ambiguous. But then, you know they can work their manic, uh, their magic in the edit, you know? So, um, but I mean, you know, somebody said, well, Chris is, are these separate instances or not? I could have presented detailed argument and you see them in the book as I'm eventually moving past them. There were arguments I could have made that made me believe, yes, that they were one in the same incident. And there were plenty of arguments as to why they weren't. And eventually, <laughs> ironically, it was only years later when I finally gave up. And by the way, there was, there was a lot of fallout in this. Uh, I mean, let me lay one on you I haven't mentioned to date. When I said, when I finally discovered the identity of the ships, and mm -hmm. I mentioned the command ship being HM, 
CSK, uh, Her, Her Majesty's Canadian ship, Cape Scott, the command ship there, my father was on the mission. Ah. Was still in the Navy. How about that? He took it to the grave. And I know he would have known because at the time he was one of the medics on the ship. Yeah. And, you know, divers work very closely with medics and they were mishaps, right? Oh, sure. And that all, we, those details are gone to in the book and in quite detail, including um, the thing that finally broke this was a kooky dream I had after I'd stopped researching. And I just went to Wikipedia just to look up uh, what the nature of dad's boat was. And, you know, it wasn't to confirm the story or anything. And I read it and, you know, wikis change over the years. And the last time we looked at the definition of the ship of what its mission was and its service history, this statement wasn't in it. There was one little sentence, one sentence. And all it said was that in 1960, Cape Scott took part in a NATO minesweeping exercise called Sweep Clear 5. How about that? And the reason that was so significant is because me... Uh, my co-author of Impact to Contact, the, which is, I think, the definitive book on the Shag Harbor incident. You know, when we wrote that, I mean, we, Graham and I went through just hundreds and hundreds, well, no, thousands of pages of, of like, you know, logbooks, Canadian mm -hmm. logbooks, going back like we'd have a name, why we thought it would be this ship. And we just go back over the years and kept pushing the bait, dates back. And the thing is, what I what I was surprised was in all that time we never once put a navy ship in Shelburne Harbor. Well, mm -hmm. once for a day, a goodwill mission in Centennial Year '67, HM CS Fraser stopped there for one day. It was going down to Washington to show off something that we had developed that the Americans wanted called the Bear Trap, which mm -hmm. was a way to land, uh, you know, uh, a helicopter on the deck of a small destroyer escort. Right? We had developed mm -hmm. that technology. You know they. The helicopter lowers a, a steel cable, a winch, and, you know, they lash it to the deck and put the helicopter on full power as the ship's pitching and rising up and down in waves, and you just winch it in, huh. you know, down to the yeah. deck, right? And yeah. it was a new thing in the day. And they just stopped as a goodwill mission because it was Canada's centennial year. But out of, like, all these pages, of, like, I went through every destroyer escort on the East Coast, like 30-some ships, you know, going back over the years. Could never put a ship even in Shelburne Harbor. So when I saw Dad's boat, you know, in Shelburne Harbor on a NATO mission, I'm like, no, 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 that can't be that. That, and I thought, 60. That's too early because you know we were going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I'd go another year. I'd missed it by a year, right? So, you know, uh, those were the things. And then so, but this article, that's all it said. One sentence. It didn't name you know, what other ships, whatever. So I, you know, I can remember jumping to my feet and thinking, oh my God, that's got to be it. Because I just looked at so much and never could put a boat there. So, hmm. and when it said, you know, that there were 18 ships involved, you know, 10 American, I'm like, that's got to be it. But it didn't name the other ships. Hmm. So I went down to a local secondhand bookstore and started looking through old copies of the Crow's Nest, which was an old Canadian Navy, you know, text magazine. And I thought, well, if we were part of this, there'd probably be some bragging rights in it. And I eventually found the December 1960 copy. And when I went through it, it named all the ships. But get this. I probably missed it before because I'd been checking these magazines. And uh, When I would see one in the store, you know, a secondhand bookstore, I'd pick it up and I'd flip through it. The first thing I would do was go to the table of contents. 
Well, when I went to the table of contents of this December issue, it didn't list anything about Sweep Clear 5 or the mission. Hmm. So I decided to just read the whole book at this point. And in an unrelated article in the third column going down the page, it suddenly shifts into talking about this, but no title or subtitle or anything and named all the ships. Hmm. I don't understand why to this day, things like that, but it was like they were trying to keep it low. And then the next big breakthrough was the fact that I read the Canadian version, which was, if I had to paraphrase it in a sentence is, Hey, it was a good time was had by all working with our American friends. Right. And then I went out now that I had the ship's names and looked at the American version of the mission, which was, oh, my God, what a mess. Mm. You know? And uh, the fact that first thing I saw when I looked at the American version was that uh, Cape Scott got in trouble and was going to run aground in Sh- uh, Shelburne Harbor, lost her engines and had to be rescued by USS Yazoo, you know. Mm. And it, everything I found, there was this huge discrepancy, and one thing led to another, and it was clear I had to get the ship's log, and then I'd found some of them had been shredded. But luckily, in the end, persistence, and, well, it's all in the book. I know that sounds like yeah. a shameless plug, but it is. There's more than we can talk about in two hours. Yeah, right. Yeah, and by the way, the, the show is, uh, we're just about ready to wrap up. I, I've no. failed to mention to you that I don't, don't always run a two-hour show. Uh, I lost my two-hour time slot, basically. Uh, but now, but we're we're alive on on YouTube. But here's another question here: Why was the Canadian Prime Minister not more cooperative with President Kennedy at the time? Do you know? Well, I can tell you this: um, He was very close with Eisenhower. They used to go on fishing trips together. They're quite famous for that. They were very close. Um, there's a in fact, it was Eisenhower that convinced uh, the prime minister, his name was John Diefenbaker, to uh, get rid of the arrow we were developing, the double supersonic fighter at the time, that we didn't need that, that fighter jets weren't the future, and they sold us a bunch of those Bowmark missiles at the time here for North American defense. And um, I don't know, I, I, Eisenhower, I don't know, was he Republican or Democrat? Jeez, you know, I, I don't even know what I Well, anyway, know. Kennedy was Democrat, but he they never got along at all. And in fact, at the end of that meeting, it probably inadvertently or maybe maybe not, Kennedy left behind a little note that he'd been writing down while arguing in between calls and that with Diefenbaker. And uh, it said in the note quite what he thought of Diefenbaker. And uh, Diefenbaker found the note. You know, so there was this history. There was this history between them. Right. But um, I, I can't tell you any more than that. What I really what the really book, the book goes into is how this admiral disobeyed direct orders from the prime minister and defense minister uh, to support the Americans. In fact, they emptied Halifax Harbor, the largest military port, and we did everything we could for them. And the Americans helped us keep it quiet. And eventually what would happen, though, is we did admit that we were helping. It was, it was discovered uh, because the prime minister felt compelled once other NATO nations joined in to show support for the Cuban blockade. So, mm. But mm. it's a controversial thing in our history, and it led to the downfall of the prime minister. Up here, of course, governments can fall at any time, eh? Right. Well, uh, Eisenhower was indeed a Republican, and let's see, the thing I would like to to say right now is uh, the producer took two, the first two calls and gave each person a book. 
So I didn't, I didn't make it clear with her about uh, doing it twice. So anyway, uh, she's getting a lot of calls still <laughs> for your book. <laughs> so uh, by the way, you can still get the book. It's just not going to be a signed one. Uh, no, it's available on Amazon. Yeah. But it's on Amazon, and the link is in down in uh, the YouTube video and also in the show notes. So uh, every, everyone can still get the book. But let me ask you this here. This is a very good question because I wondered this too. Can I ask how the crafts left? Did anyone ever talk about that? No, no. Uh, I mean, we know how they left in the Shag Harbor incident in 67. No, we don't have any kind of follow-up to that. I'm still looking for that. As the book explains at the end of the book, this is just the end, that, that I had one busy year since I knew the identities of the ship and the actual dates of the incident. And uh, I'm now entering phase two of this. Basically what this has done is taken what was just a story to this point and made it a viable case. And one that, like Martin pointed out, I think they're going to have to rewrite the history books regarding the DEFCON one thing and the rest of it, right? Hmm. Before our time runs out, Martin, I'd, I'd like to mention to them that you're coming to Nova Scotia this fall. To yes. Present. I am really excited about that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so am I, you know, we're, we're, because, you know, it's you heard we had quite the bang-up one last year. I'll put it this way. He had such a blast. Nick Pope's coming back. He said just because of the fish cakes. Uh, how about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, I was yeah. supposed to be there last year, but I was actually on the operating table when I was supposed to be speaking. There's so, grandma. Yeah, and doing well now. But um, I really want to thank you for re-inviting me back. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And I can't yeah. wait. Can't wait. So that Shag Harbor for anyone that wants to come up and have some fun. That's October 1st. Up yeah. in Shag Harbor, Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. So, well, Yarmouth, Yarmouth. Oh, Yarmouth. Okay. Yeah. The Grand Hotel in Yarmouth. Oh, it's in Yarmouth. Yes. It's in yeah. Yarmouth, which is about what? 50 miles from Shag Harbor. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite that much. But yeah. uh, anyone wants to find out shagharborufoexpo.com online, you'll get all the gory details, see the great lineup we got, you know, Travis, Walton, Nick, Martin, of course, you know. Oh, oh I didn't uh, realize Travis is going to be there. Pal Travis is going to be there, Paolo Harris. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we got quite the lineup sort of thing. And, of course, I'll be there. Yeah, excellent. Well, to I answer questions. Yeah. yeah. It's going to yeah. be a blast. It will be. Thank you so much, Chris. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I really respect you. And I think you do. You're one heck of a researcher. And uh, this book really made me uh, find that out uh, by reading it. I, I was so impressed with your work. So uh, and thank you for doing that. Well, I uh, thank you. No, really. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It means a lot to hear it from you. Yeah. That's why I wanted you to do it forward. You were at the top yeah. of the list. Uh, well, thank you. And I just threw the list away, name one, and he said, yes, how can you go wrong? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right, Chris, we'll see you in October. We will. Okay, right. my friend. Thank you so much. You bet. Goodbye. All right, everyone. So that's it for the show this evening. Next week, we'll be back with Paul Escal in uh, the UK. And thank you for watching the show. And we'll see you the same. We'll see you Tuesday next week. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky.